Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths. And my date, my guest today says what makes you uncomfortable. No, let me start over. My guest today says what makes you comfortable can ruin you, and what makes you uncomfortable is the only way to grow. And I'm going to ask him what that means. I think I do. I think I know what it means, but I would like for him to go a little bit deeper into that. So my guest, Bill Ekstrom, is the CEO and founder of Excel, E-C-S-E-L-L Institute, and his robust professional career path has encompassed sales, sales leadership, excuse me, executive leadership with both private and publicly traded companies, and as a founder of startups. So in 2008, he he established, I'm going to have to apologize, we've got a hurricane barreling literally straight to my door. I'm just a little bit distracted. If the models hold, it will be knocking on my door in the next 24 hours. So, Bill, I'm just going to apologize. I'm just a little, you know, little bit off center here, but we'll make it through. So what I'm going to (laughs) thank you. You've been through hurricanes, so you know what this is all about. So what I'm going to do is just kind of stop chatting, and I'm going to let you explain what Excel is and why you started it. And then I wanted to ask you about the coaching effect, what great leaders do to increase sales, enhance performance, and sustain growth, which is a book that you introduced in April 2019. Excuse me, and has been a bestseller since the first week of its release. So, if you don't mind, because my voice is fading in and out, if you don't mind just kind of taking over, I'm going to give you the wheel. <laughs> That's a dangerous thing, Denise. I know. Give huh? me the wheel. <laughs> I trust uh, we you. Hardly, we, we, we hardly know each other. It's our first date. I <laughs> uh, know. Well, we've, we've spoken oh, before my. briefly. Yes, so. we have. But tell well, people who you are and, and why you say that, what makes you comfortable can ruin you. When I first read that, I went, well, yeah. But then I read it again and went, oh, people are not going to understand this. You know, it, it, the phrase uh, – came out of um, a TED Talk that I gave back in 2017. It was titled, Why Comfort Will Ruin Your Life. And it came from a body of research that uh, we were and, and have continually been working on when we were studying what great leaders and coaches were doing to create the highest growth or or highest performing teams. And while there's a lot of items that people would guess that were endemic to wonderful coaches, things like, you know, they built trust connections, they had great structures in place, uh, they created psychological safety. Um, We discovered a discomfort component to it as well, meaning that they created what, what one of our uh, one of the organizations with whom we, we were working, uh, she said, there's a sense of healthy tension involved. 
But, you know, how do you explain that? How do you, you – you can't just tell leaders or coaches at that point, hey, you know what, go create this comfort and uh, people will grow more. So it took us years of continued research and ha- trying to figure out how to explain it. And we developed a model called the growth rings, which is in our book and I introduced in the TED Talk that really has um, – I don't mean this in an arrogant way, but I think it's it's done a nice job throughout actually throughout the world based on the responses and feedback I've received of of explaining how growth is impacted by our environments and without discomfort in our world and in our lives, be it physiological, uh, be it uh, psychological, growth doesn't occur. So. Uh, it applies to teams. It applies to our communities. It applies, uh, applies to our schools. It applies to nature. Uh, applies to about everything. So probably a little more than uh, that was a long way around the barn, Denise. So hopefully that helps to get us started this morning. It does. And, you know, when I first saw that and I read it, I went, well, yeah, deadlines. You're always miserable when a deadline is looming and you've got nothing. And all of a sudden... You pull up your creativity, you pull up your big boy pants, and you find your creativity, and you get it done. And in my case, I often find that when I'm approaching that deadline and I'm saying, oh, my gosh, I can produce some really great stuff because that's all I'm concentrating on. And I need to apologize. My cat, like I say, there's a hurricane coming, and they're all a little bit antsy right now, but this particular one is wanting me to go play catch with him. So we're probably going to hear <laughs> That's his mom play catch with me. He has bottle caps that he's throwing at me. But anyway, it's when I first read that, I went, well, yeah, deadlines. But it's not that simple, is it? No, it, I mean, it, it can be that simple. Really what creates, you know, this is what's interesting. This is what we're learning, what we've learned and what we continue to learn. It is, becomes things that are unpredictable. It's unpredictability that creates discomfort. Likewise, the synthesis of that is predictability creates comfort. And when you think so... And boredom. And when you're bored, you're not firing at all cylinders either. Yeah. And, and, yes, the the predictability can create boredom for some. It can create that uh, it's desirable for others. You know, when you think about it, our businesses are set up. I mean, what's a budget? It's a way to create a predictable outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so many of the things we do in business are done in a way that actually prohibit growth. People, leaders that make us uncomfortable, we shy away from. Uh, processes and systems that don't drive predictable outcomes are not used or they're impugned. Now, I'm not saying we don't budget. I'm not saying we shouldn't have some of those those things in place because our research shows that healthy organizations do have some order is what we refer to. That's what creates predictability. But without the discomfort without which is in a, what's referred to as a complex environment without that without that um, in place without that showing and most of the time leaders are the ones who drive that 
growth is minimized. And, and we can go as far as to say when it's done poorly, uh, leaders actually prohibit growth. Can you give me some examples? So, so yeah, yeah. If, if, if we take, um, take a sales department, for example, if there is a leader that, that and, and we've seen this happen many times, the executives will say, hey, we, we know that doing one-on-one meetings are really, really good. That's one of the activities that high-performing leaders do with the people on their team. But if I am no good at doing a one-on-one meeting with somebody on my team, I go out there and start and, and do more of it, I'm actually doing, I'm creating what we call negative discretionary effort. So I could actually be withholding performance, meaning that if, if I left the team as a leader and just left them on their own, they, they would perform at a higher level than with me involved. That makes sense. So, so if you have a leader who just is uncomfortable with this, he's not very good at it, but he doesn't know he's not very good at it, he's actually causing what you call discretionary effort. And I wanted to ask you about that as well, but he's actually causing some, not just discomfort, but some genuine misery would be my guess. Right. Yeah. And, and when you go backwards, you're either likely in a state of stagnation or chaos. Um, and that's what poor leaders can do. And it, it's really because you can act, you can measure it. You can quantify it now. People used to think, well, those are soft skills. So they're not soft skills. Soft skills are only soft skills because you can't measure them. When you can quantify them, they, they become hard skills. That's a good point. I never, and I'm familiar with both skills. I have great soft skills, I think. But it never occurred to me that soft skills could become hard skills. That's brilliant. Well, <laughs> thank you. Um, that's very flattering. Um, but if we, look to, for, if we look for ways to measure them and we can see the impact they have, then, yeah, then it's a hard skill. For example, we can now quantify the strength of relationships uh, leaders have with the people that, re- that report to them, so with the people on their team, whether it's in the worlds of business or the worlds of sport. We can quantify that. And so that soft skill of, well, trust or trust-based connections, relationships, that's not soft because we can actually correlate that to growth and performance. And and that's what we need to turn to is, is really understanding the importance of those things. And our research shows that those, you know, trust-based relationships are the foundation for growth in the worlds of business and sport. And that does make sense to me. I mean, if you, it can be a small company, it can be a big company, it can be a single person on your team. If you don't have trust or have lost trust, that, it's like you ate a poison pill. You're just not going to get back there, are you? Or can you? I guess that's the real question. You you can, Denise, but it's like, um, it's kind of like a savings account, you know. You spend two, three years saving money, and then in one binge, you spend it all, you wipe it out. And it takes years to 
to rebuild it. And I mean that literally, years to rebuild it. Um, so the leaders, coaches are always in a precarious position because most of their perceived strengths or qualities as a leader or coach are derived in stressful events. And oh, stressful events don't come along, don't come along very often. But when they do, I can use up the money in that savings account with one bad move. So that's why we have to be careful. And we've seen that time and time again, um, especially now with cancel culture and everybody's got a keyboard and they don't care how nasty they can get. It's, I can understand what you're talking yeah. about. Right. And, and, and well, sadly, it's, Sometimes it's even unjustified, but even when it's justified, you know, you, <laughs> you, can, you can wipe out that savings account in a hurry. So what do you do? If this has happened to let's just let's make up a hypothetical leader. Let's say he is, he's been accustomed to sitting in his corner office and doing things the old way, like you do this, you do this, and call me if you need me. I'll be having meetings with the, you know, the big boys over in the lunchroom or wherever it is. And all of a sudden now he has to actually create that trust or, you know, make sure that people do trust him, trust his judgment, trust his perspicacity, if you will. What happens? I mean, people are actually, from what I'm seeing, and I could be wrong, but I talk to an awful lot of really great people on this podcast, and it seems to me that people are really having to do things differently, especially with COVID and having to be more hands-on, whether it's through Zoom or whatever it is, but you have to come out of that office and show up. Am I wrong or yeah. am I kind of hitting the target here? No, 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 ma'am. You are, you are correct. And the, and, the, and the word show up can mean a lot of different things. Um, right. And I, and I would tell you, more than anything, you have to show up emotionally. And um, you have to show up in so many different ways. For example, when, when COVID was going on, we were uh, doing some, obviously, some, some, I shouldn't say obviously, but we jumped into some quick research to understand the impacts it was having. And then we started to study some of our high-performing uh, clients and what were their leaders doing during COVID. And it was interesting. Some, a lot of them, um, most of our leaders, uh, what we consider high-performing ones, they picked up their communication to the people on their team. They were having mm -hmm. more one-on-ones. They were texting more. They were calling more. They were really communicating more frequently. And then what they were communicating were things like strategy, candor, Here's where we're at today. Here's where we're going to be tomorrow. Here's our plans. And their teams responded in a way um, that the, the, the trust that they conveyed to their leadership was so much greater than organizations whose leaders were not doing these things. And so it's not – and those things they did aren't so much unique because that's what made them great anyway but they just did more of it, which at the time was needed. Well, what I would hear and see when this first started was that people were just 
panicking. They weren't hearing from their management. They weren't hearing from their leaders. They didn't know if they needed to go to work tomorrow. They didn't know how to go to work tomorrow. They were just kind of stuck. And this wasn't unusual, sadly. It was like the leaders just went, ha, ah, and, you know, just froze in their tracks and didn't use what I would call critical thinking and common sense, which I realize common sense is not that common. But the way you're talking about the leaders who said, hey, we're here. We're not going to dump you. Let us hear your, you know, what's going on. We're going to do our absolute best to make this work and alleviate your pain and your fright because we were all scared to death. I wasn't because I work from home and I'm my own boss and I like my boss. She's pretty cool. But you know, so many people <laughs> did not have that. And they were just going, oh, my God, oh, my God, restaurants in particular. You know, we I live in a in southwest Louisiana, restaurants are everywhere. I mean, we cook. We'll cook anything that doesn't get out of the way quick enough. But it was just <laughs> horrible to watch what people were going through because their leadership wasn't communicating. Maybe they didn't know how. But, you know, your high performers knew how, and they found out how to do it. Yeah. Yes, they did. And, you know, it's – and maybe we could go down a different road on this. I mean, it's we're all exposed to stimulus that creates, therefore, a response, right? right. If, I don't know if, if that makes sense. And um, it's when we get up in the morning, um, it's the 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 social media we intake, the news we hear the email we, we receive, the way, the mood our kids are in, the traffic on taking them to school or on the way to work, uh, the first Zoom call I have with a client or my boss. We are constantly barraged with the stimuli throughout our day. The pandemic was another, it was another form of that stimuli. But it's not the fact that we're exposed to it because every single person every day is exposed to this kind of stimulus. It's how we respond to it ultimately that determines our growth. And that's really ultimately what we help people do and learn and, and, and understand is what creates this growth. And one of the things that leaders forget or forgot is that during the pandemic, this uh, COVID was a stimulus and it was causing people to go into a state of chaos and a state of chaos that creates one of three responses, fight, flight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. And so leadership needed to step in and help people understand that, yes, we are all exposed to this, but how, how, what I say, what, how I communicate with the people on my team can get them out of that chaotic state that they can back away from the fight, flight, or freeze uh, emotions that our, our, our minds put us in. And somebody just forgot to do it because I think their response to the pandemic put them in the same state, and they didn't know how to oh, handle yeah. it. And they're running around in a panic themselves. Now that you're talking about this, my thinking is and was at the time that you don't necessarily have to just deal with your own people, your own team, your own clients, if you will. 
I'm a web developer by trade, and I've built an awful lot of web, websites. Some are still my clients. Many of them are. Some are not. They've either moved on or they, you know, went in a different direction entirely. But when I realized that a lot of them were not talking about what are their hours, what's going on, how are they, you know, do they have COVID hours, do they have a mass policy, all of it, I got in touch with every single web client that I had ever worked with and said, listen, this is what needs to happen. You need to post this on your website, have your web developer do it. You need to post this on your, you know, just get it out there. Let people know that you're still out there. This is how they can reach you. I actually, and this wasn't my intention, but I actually picked a couple of old clients back up. But it just never occurred to me not to help other people with what I was seeing. They didn't have to be my client any longer, but they needed to know what Mm -hmm. they didn't to know. And I think a lot of people, we saw this in, in the education industry, you know, a lot of teachers just said, we've got to get this information to our kids. And they started creating Zoom rooms and they they picked it up and they did what they needed to do. So I think a lot of people just said, you know, how can we help? And they're still doing right. that. You know, it's funny you say that, um, and you and I must think a lot alike because during COVID, same thing. Nobody was uh, using the types of work we were doing. And so what we said is, well, let's help people for free understand how their employees are feeling about their leadership and whether or not their leaders are doing a good job of helping them work through this time. And so that's what we did. We, we just sent out and said, hey, if you want us to survey your people, and help you understand the impact leaders are having, we created a COVID survey. And a lot of organizations took us up on it. And said, and then we really were able to help them, all for free, just because we had the resources um, at the time that weren't being used, so let's go help some people. And um, exactly when you, right. do that, you do that, that usually comes usually back comes in space. It does, and if it doesn't, you still did your best, but I, I agree with you. It does come back. And if you're actively trying to help other people without saying, oh, you know, you owe me 50 bucks or whatever it is, right. people are going right. to remember that. And then this is the better part of that. They're going to say, hey, we've got information we can share too. So it's got that ripple effect, the coaching effect, if you, if you like. But it has that ripple effect where people are saying, oh, geez, okay, I don't need to be frozen in this position Here's how I can help. Yes, you're right. Yes, you're right. Um, and, and I wish more people would just understand that the more you, it, it becomes a wicked cycle. The more you give, the more you get, as cliche as that sounds. But nothing feels better at the end of the day. You're right. And, you know, it just didn't occur to me not to reach out to everybody I knew, and even some people I hadn't built their websites, but I knew them well enough to say, hey, this is what I'm discovering. This is what you need to do. If you need any help, let me know. It, you know, it took me the better part of a day, and then I was done. But I think it helped a mm-hmm. lot of people. I really do. And, and I had no, no intentions of getting anything back from it. Somebody needed to know these things. And you're doing the same thing. So since you have done all of that, and you, like you say, you know, when you do something good for people, it does come back. Has your business checked back in? Are people saying, okay, we're good, we're ready to keep on moving? Oh, sure. It, it absolutely has. Um, our, our year just ended 
um, at the end of June, and we had a wonderful year. Um, but, uh, yes, it's because of some of the things we did during the year, but it's just as much as anything, it's talented people. Because that wasn't my, by the way, my idea to reach out for free was not uh, our company's work, I should say, was not my idea. It was our president's idea. Uh, okay. She's the one who said, hey, we, we have these additional resources. Let's go help people. That's Sarah Worth, right? First, Sarah? Yes, very good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I spoke with her briefly. Right. And I want to talk to you about the book, too. So we're talking, you know, basically in a roundabout kind of way, what great coaches and leaders do differently to create the most growth of individuals and teams. Do you have any you know, examples that you want to share with the audience? Wow. Um, how much time do we have? <laughs> uh, I told you, you're going to have to do all the talking. I'm, I'm barely here. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, there, there are so many examples. There's, uh, there's studies we've done that on groups, on individuals. And, well, I think – some of the most profound stories are in areas and people, uh, whether it's in the world of business or sport, where nobody else really knows about them except the people on their team and maybe their own respective company. Uh, I can think of a sales leader who, you know, and, and come on, I grew up in the in the world of sales where. It was a classic. You you know you eat what you kill, right? You go out, you hunt, mm-hmm. and you you and and it's it's all about you and your performance. And um, what we're learning is that's not always the case. And and team environments can produce more than than a bunch of rogue, uh, swashbuckling people that believe they're you know that they're the greatest thing to sales. And this one um, woman with whom we work in, in, in her department, she has this very strong team-first mentality that they will walk away from, from, uh, from deals to help the team first. And she consistently, her teams consistently outperform all of their peers and everyone else within the organization and across, quite frankly, the industry. Um, with her work, but nobody really knows about her except the people on her team that will uh, just go to battle with her and for her. Um, I can think of uh, athletic coaches whose impact on student-athletes that has, because of how they've evolved as a coach, has been so profound that they've become one of those people in the lives other student athletes to where they would say, yeah, when I grow up, I want to be like this person. Coach Wood. You know, one of those. Yeah, one of those. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, that, that, that type. So they're there. We see those stories all the time. Um, I wish we saw more of them, though, Denise. I wish more people were willing to understand the impact they have today but more importantly, the impact they could have if they were willing to change some behaviors. So, you know, We hear about teams all the time, and frankly, I, 
on the rare occasions where I've had to work in somebody else's office because I do need to be alone and I do like to do my own thing. I'm an introvert. You don't want me in your office. Seriously, you really don't. But it, I never considered myself part of a team. It just wasn't in me until I had to create my own team, and that scared the bejeebers out of me because I had to finally figure out that I needed to hire or contract people who were better than me. Now, tell me what that does to your ego. That that hurt. But once I started oh. doing that, I was like, oh, it, it was magic. You know, yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, and I see I see different people respond differently to that. They're um, I've always had fun finding people that were smarter than me. Um, and I think as we age, we become a little more wise as to what our strengths are, and, and we surround, our people, surround ourselves with people who can do things a lot better than we can. But, yes, there are – and I see it in organizations, too, where, you know, uh, an executive – if they don't have all the answers, perceived value drops. Oh. And as a result, they're afraid to say, I don't know. Or they're afraid That's to be the best vulnerable thing you can do. with their team. That's the best thing you can do. So, I, you I know, agree. I don't have that answer, but I'm going to find it. Or I'm going to find somebody I who agree. has that answer. By the way, does anybody on this table have the answer? Let's hear from you. Yeah. Our, our value as a leader is not so much our ability to have those answers. Our, we, we bring greater value when we have the ability to ask the best question, mm-hmm. not have the best answer. And when people, you know, we've, we've gone to several iterations of management and then now it's more leadership than I think it is management unless I'm just dead wrong but it used to be you know management you know white shirt tie and they were the boss whatever they said went didn't matter how silly it was you had to do what they wanted you to do now we are far more concerned with you know, finding the best people, putting them on the team, bringing the best out of them, like this this woman that you just described. I would, if I had to be on a team, I would kill to be on her team. You know, that's that's who I would want to be around. So, are people slowly making that transition from just you know old-fashioned management to being team leaders, team members? And I don't think this. I'm going to interrupt myself. I don't think you can be a team leader without also being a team member, if that makes any sense. Uh, Elaborate on that for me to make sure I understand. Well, if you're the team leader, you're, you're listening, you're caring, you're trying to be empathetic, but you're also part of that team. You have to be able to, you know, like you did with Sarah, and Sarah said, hey, let's, here's this idea, let's do it. I don't think either one of you was a leader at that moment. She had an idea. She gave it to you. You ran with it. You were members, not just leaders. Does it, I'm mm-hmm. trying to explain mm-hmm. this in a way that everybody can understand, but I don't know how well I'm doing. 
Oh, but but I, I, I okay. So yes, you are right. So back 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 to the original question, uh, shifting from kind of a management to leadership, and I would go as far as to say we're 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 shifting again from a leadership to a coaching uh, mentality. Mm-hmm. Uh, to answer your other question, no, it's not happening quickly enough. Um, I was afraid of that. It's interesting. The, the, the term management in and of itself is archaic. It was brought about in the industrial era. Um, That's think no further than Ford's assembly line. Right. So it's, it's about managing inputs and outcomes, and human capital had very little to do in that equation. Leadership is, you know, oh, my gosh, there's so many different forms of it, so many different variations, so many ways to teach it and philosophies of it. Uh, and I don't impugn any of them. I think it's great. Um, but coaching in my mind is when the, the, what differentiates that is I have a person or a team of people that reports to me. I think I can be a great leader, exhibit leadership behaviors when I'm in a follower position. I'm not a coach when I'm in a follower position. I'm a team member, but I'm not the coach of that team. So the coaching aspect uh, is, I think, really what's taking over. And ultimately, what matters is does the coach create discretionary effort? In other words, does, do, the, do the people on my team are they more engaged? Do they work an extra hour during the week? Do they make an extra phone call? Do they take the time to, to visit with somebody else on the team that they might not otherwise do? In sales, it's, if my team will produce $10 million without me, they better produce 12 or $14 million with me because that added value is because of my presence, because of my coaching. It's my discretionary effort that brings that out in people. And if I don't bring that additional effort out, if I don't get that from people or if they don't give it, that means why am I in that role? Why would I ever? I mean, we may as well just have a, a help desk within organizations that can answer questions. Understood. Sorry, I, I, can, no, I can get on a roll with that. No, keep going because I'm finding this fascinating. And I agree with you right now, everybody, when I've – when I first started my web development uh, company, the big thing, and I was a big part of it, I was one of the best paid virtual assistants around. I finally just stopped because there was too many people jumped in. If they had a keyboard or they'd been answering a phone at a dentist office for six months, they were all of a sudden a virtual assistant. Same thing is happening with the podcast industry. And now I'm seeing that a lot of people are claiming to be coaches and you know, I watch them, I follow them, and I think, man, good luck to you, but you're not a coach yet. You could be, and you probably will be, but right now I think you're overselling yourself. Are you seeing that? Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. Um, so when I use that term, coach, there's so many different ways. So there's, like, personal coaches, right? I can go out and hire mm-hmm. one, which I've had, which I've right? Had, right? A personal Me coach. Too. To help me, uh, to see the world differently. But every within every organization, again, whether it's in business or, or athletic, there are coaches. 
And if I'm a leader, really, I need to behave more like a coach to get the most out of my team. So, yes, the individual coaching world is growing, but as is the thought around a business about having their – I mean, we have clients now that they've eliminated the term manager or management. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they now, if you get into what used to be called management, they call it coaching. You are, have become a coach of a team. Interesting. We haven't studied this yet, and I would like to sometime. Is if I know that my, my move up the you know, proverbial corporate ladder is to, is to become a coach instead of a manager, how many people want that job? Well, I, I have now I would think the not right too many. people applying. <laughs> right. Oh, no, wait a minute. You mean I have to coach these people? I can't just tell them what right. to do? I can't manage yeah. them? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're all bossy, right? And just do what I say and nobody gets hurt. That doesn't work. No, I, I was looking at a research the other day, and it's interesting. In business, your chances of having what we call top-performing coach, or we'll just say the word boss, but your chances of having a top-performing boss into the business world is 54%, which is higher than what I thought it would be. Yeah, that doesn't sound awful. But No, but think about it this way. What's the reverse of that? I have a uh, 54%, I think. So So I have a 46% chance of getting a boss that probably creates zero or perhaps negative discretionary effort. In our, in our actual research, it's 33%. But I got a 46% chance of having a boss that's not very good. How about that? Yeah, and everybody and the, worries and, about and, that. And, and, Nobody wants that. Right, and, and, and we all know, everybody knows by now, the biggest reason I stay, leave, am engaged or unengaged, uh, I, I offer discretionary effort or I don't, has to do with my boss. And 47% of the time, I don't have a good one. That's, and, that, that, that's, that's, that's where business that's needs business to needs. improve. Right. And the sad thing, I think, and I have no data to support this. This is just me you know, thinking out loud. But I think most of these poor performing bosses don't know that they're not good at what they do. They're just doing what they were taught to do or not taught to do. So many are, are just tossed into it and... Not ha- there's no training, there's no ongoing anything, and a lot of them were just promoted way above, you know, where they should be. But they don't know what they don't know, do they? So how do you help them? No. Oh, it's, it's you know, first of all, if you were to ask, uh, well, I mean, back it up, to, to your point, Denise, most organizations – don't even have a training program when one gets moved into a leadership role. And we'll just right. use that from there, okay? okay? Or a coaching, or a coaching role. role. And sans that, I'm probably then going to lead or coach depending on how I was. That's my past experiences, so therefore I'll do it that way. And then basically what you're doing is you're saying, well, I'm going to lead, I'm going to leave your um, performance up to chance. I hope you do it the right way. 
So let's say we do have a leadership development program or we have a, a, a program within our organization when somebody gets moved into a, a leadership role that they do have some sort of training involved. Well, what are you training them on? Do you know for a fact that you're training them on the things that create the most discretionary effort, that create that motivation to perform? And none of them that, that we have seen know what that is. So that means you're hoping the things you're training them on are the right things. But that's like going to a doctor and saying, you know, well, I really don't know, so I hope this works. Yeah. Really not yeah. what I'm looking for when I go to my doc. Exactly. Or going to an attorney when you need a divorce, but you're at an estate attorney. You have to be kind of fussy about <laughs> what you're looking for. And, you know, you can't just pick up a binder and say, hey, read this, you're trained. Good luck. God bless. Yeah. And and our our world is so quickly evolving. You know, I was on the phone yesterday with one of my colleagues who was, was, and he called me because he had just hopped off the phone having a conversation with a leader within an organization. And he said, we just discovered, and this is not within our organization, this colleague's organization, that two of their people had two full-time jobs. What? They were working, working full-time within that organization, but they also had other full-time jobs in another organization. Uh, and, the, and, and, and their leaders, their managers, did not know it. I'm wondering if there was anything between those two organizations that shouldn't have been shared. You know, yeah, I, I don't know. I have, I have a suspicious yeah. mind, just so you know. You know, it's it's just it, it's really become it's it's an interesting time because everybody's looking for talent. Everybody's looking. Everybody seems like everybody needs help. Nobody knows how to get it. Nobody knows how to keep it. Um, and people then are are really searching for some sort of meaning or money or something that takes them, makes them off doing some odd things. So, Well, work, we'll see where the workplace, head. yeah, the workplace can be a miserable, wretched place if you allow it to be. I wanted to go back to your book. Um, you and, and Sarah have spent a decade researching the activities, the behaviors, and the performance of leaders, which is what we're touching on on this podcast. But in the book, it says, after studying more than 100,000 coaching interactions in the workplace, primarily of sales teams, you've been able to determine how coaching, again, there's that word, affects team outcomes and growth. So I'm I'm just going to tell everybody, get the book. You really need to just grab the book. Also share three critical performance drivers along with four high growth activities that coaches, not leaders, not not bosses, not managers, four high growth activities that coaches must execute to build a team that is motivated to achieve at the highest levels. Kind of like what, you know, this woman that you're you're talking about. So where do people Start. I mean, yeah, they, they need to read the book. Yes, they need to figure out if they're a leader, a coach, a boss, or, or if they're a worker bee. They need to figure out, I think, where they belong. So how do you help people at all levels understand where they belong and where they can move if they're getting, if they'll get out of their comfort zone? <laughs> yeah. So 
Wow, that's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm just no, I'm thinking out loud. Yeah, no, this is good. This is good. You know, um, so when you say where they start, how do they start, Denise? Meaning, if I'm into that leadership role, how, where do I start? Where do I begin to understand what I need to do to become a great, high-performing, high-growth coach? Is that what you're asking? I am because it's you know you, a lot of us will just get thrust into these positions, and we're like, mm-hmm. oh geez, you know, there's a pandemic. I don't know what I'm doing. Oh hell, oh hell, oh hell. <laughs> there's there's some knuckle wringing, you know. There's some you know nail biting. But then they calm down and go hunt for help. I think. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. a lot of them don't just suffer through it and just I got this. I can do this. Ugh, I can't do this. They're going to go. Find people like you. Find people who know how to help them. So how do they you know, how do they find this help? Is my I guess my question. How do they recognize it, and how do they what do they do next? Well, okay, so that that's actually a a simplistically brilliant question, meaning that when I give you my answer, you're going to go, oh, well, of course, but yet so few people do it. And, and so I'll give you the answer, and then I'll tell you, I'll show why, so, why, why not enough people do it. So the answer is the only way to know where to begin is to measure what you do well and what your opportunities for growth are. So as a coach, what do I do well with my team? What do I need to improve to get my team to perform at a higher level? That sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? It does. So it all starts with measurements, right? It's no different than if I go in, I'll use the doctor analogy again. I go in, I have a headache. Well, I, I, you can have everything from a caffeine headache to a brain tumor. So we have to do some diagnosis in order to prescribe. And it's really no different in my growth as a coach or a leader. Is I first have to diagnose. Now, the only way, or let me rephrase it, the most accurate way, to diagnose what I do well, what I don't do well, is to go to the people on my team. Because they're the ones that have the most keen insight on that dynamic between myself and my boss. So surveying from bottom up, not 360, not side to side, not top down, I, I, I am not a fan of those, but understanding from the bottom up through the eyes of the people on my team, uh, understanding that dynamic between employees and their bosses, okay? So that, that, that's step one. Step two, or let me rephrase that, why people don't do more of that is because it creates discomfort. I was just it's going to say, simple. nobody wants to know what other people really think of you. Trust me on this. We don't want to know. We want you to pet us on the head and say, good job which is completely unrealistic. Right. And, and it's, it's, it, when I hear back from the people on my team that, uh, you know, I think I've got great connections with them. I, I think they trust me, and I realize that my trust score is only a 65% on a 1 to 100 scale. That hurts. That, that, that really mm-hmm. makes you stop in your tracks. It makes you uncomfortable. And so most leaders would rather go on 
in a state of naivete, assuming they're doing all the right things versus getting a diagnosis. So Understood. That, that, that's a big, that's challenge. a big challenge. And you don't know what you don't know. I mean, we see things through our own lens, our own bias, and we may think we're communicating really, really well, but eyebrows are going up like, what? What did she just say? And we don't see it. That's exactly right. And and we're, yeah, I mean, I'm guilty of it. Uh, we all are. Nobody's perfect mm-hmm. that way. No. We all, we, all, we all say things and do things, you know, which really encompass who we are, right, our behaviors, not all of which have the most positive impact on the people on our team. Now, well, I'm not suggesting that, that everybody be the nicest boss. That has nothing to do with it. We don't measure nice. What we measure is do they create growth of their teams through the behaviors. So it's, you know, it's those things like connection, measuring trust, measuring the, the, the structures you have in place, measuring whether or not you're developing the people's skill sets on your team, whether or not you're creating healthy challenge for the people on your teams. When I understand all of that, now I have a robust view of how well I, I, how good I am as a coach. And if I know what that is, now I know where to begin to grow. You know what, Bill? This is something I don't hear a whole heck of a lot, and I think it's so critical. When you're talking with other people, when you're trying to coach or lead people, that requires a high level of empathy, and I don't think we hear enough about that. For sure. For sure. The, 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 empathy is um, – it's hard to be a great coach and have low empathy. Sometimes empathy too high can get in your way. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I'm afraid to make, let me rephrase that, I'm uncomfortable in making you uncomfortable because I know what it feels like and my heart hurts for you and, and I'm a very empathic person and, oh, my gosh, I know what that can put you through. So we can actually see the opposite too, um, too much empathy, uh, withholding great coaches as much as low empathy can withhold great coaches. I agree with you. There has to be a level where you can say, listen, I'm, I hear you and I understand what's going on. And, you know, if you're open to some suggestions, I'm happy to give them to you. But you can't keep handing somebody a hanky. You just can't. Right. <laughs> I like how you said that, you know. Um, I, I've heard so many leaders say, well, my job is to remove obstacles for, my, for the people on my team. That's what I do. And my response is always the same, Denise, which is, no, it's not. That is not your job. Your job is to not remove obstacles for the people on your team. It's to teach them how to remove those obstacles themselves. Exactly. Because otherwise you just become an enabler. Of, and you're prohibiting growth by removing those, object, uh, those obstacles. Oh, I agree with you. I mean, there are so many instances in my own life where I just – yeah, I'm an A-type personality. I'm also, I'm bossy. I'll just admit to it. I'm bossy. I have leadership skills. Darn it, <laughs> bossy. But 
the thing is, I have made so many mistakes with people by just going, oh, shoot, I'll just do it myself. Let me fix this. And then I'm on to the next thing. Not smart. And I've, you know, had chats with myself like, ah, Denise, knock it off. I try not to do it oh. anymore. I still am I'm inclined to do it. But now I'll stop and say, is that helpful? No. Sometimes, but most right, of the time, right. not really. Oh, Denise, you, you said it so well. It's, I mean, come on, as a parent, it's a lot easier to give your kids 20 bucks than to make them go earn 20 bucks, isn't it? Yeah, it's, I guess it's, so. as, 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 as a leader, as a coach in business, it's so much easier. So I'm just going to go take care of it myself because I can get it done I can, and we can move on. As opposed to really basically creating, you know, encouraging somebody, forcing at times somebody to take care of the issue because you know ultimately it's best for them. Although it's and the issue, it is, and the issue is going to keep popping up. It's just not going to go away. It's not cured and it's not solved, and you've just made it easy for somebody to be lazy and go, "Hey, Bill. Hey, Denise. What do I do next?" You already know what to do next. I'm not going to keep walking you through it. Yeah, and and and, and I see it. I see it in parenting, and I've been guilty of it too in parenting. But I see it in parenting all the time. Um, we're, we're trying. Too many parents today are really trying to remove all the discomfort from their kids' lives. They don't want them to have any challenges in front of them. They don't, you know, um, and and that's really. Um, Boy, I tell you, we're going down going down a bad road when we do that. For we damaging. The colleges, yeah, it's know. damaging to their character, and and oh, it may make the parent feel better. It is, it, you know, the parent may go, oh, you know, I'm doing the absolute best I can do, and in their eyes, they are, but unfortunately, they're raising kids that have no critical thinking skills. They don't know what to do if if a door hits them in the face. They just don't know what to do. And I think that's a shame. You're right. No, you're right. Yeah, and and it's it's and it's that same mentality that that can invade the workplace if we're not careful. That's why, it, that's why yeah. I think it's really important for people in, in these leadership and coaching worlds to understand: Are they that enabler, or are they what we call a catalytic coach, a coach that creates healthy challenge, not fear, but healthy challenge, to create that growth. And look, I don't know about you, but I like a good challenge. I actually crave a good challenge. I've, you know, I quit working in the virtual assistance industry some years back because I was bored. I had learned everything I could learn. I could do it better than most people, and I hated it. There was nothing left for me in that industry. But once you say, you know what? What's the next thing? Not the next thing, not, you know, what's going to build my business. But there is that too. But where do my true interests lie? How can I help people? How can I be a servant leader? How can I feel good about myself when I go to bed at night? What did I do? What did I accomplish? Who did I help? And I think that's mm-hmm. coaching and leadership, unless I'm just dead wrong. No, no, that's and, – and to help. I mean, think about if you can empower the people on your team and pull back the covers so they can say to themselves what you just shared with me. Think about the power, the, the, the impact in 
in, in our homes, in our places of work, in our societies, in our governments, as people helped people with the discoveries that you just shared with me. That I don't give them that, but I help them understand how to do what you just did. Exactly. It's a whole different world. And you would think, I mean, we're talking about this like it's just perfectly, you know, commonplace activities, but it's not. I think it's getting better. I'm watching more and more people saying, hey, you know, like you, you and Sarah did, you know, we've got this for free. We will help you. I'm seeing more and more people just stepping up and saying, you know, you don't need to pay us. We can help you. I've got, you know, I can advise you. I can join your, your mastermind. You know, I've got stuff. I've got Good, good information. I would love to hear yours. Let's, you know, parlay here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I think there. Yeah, there's a fine line there, isn't there? Um, yeah. You give too much and you enable. Don't give enough and you don't create opportunity. Um, and I would like to think we that everybody should strive to find that balance. To go one extreme or the other, I don't think does as much good. No, it doesn't. But what? What I'm hearing from you, and I don't think you've actually said this in real words, but what I'm hearing from you is that as people, as humans, as parents, as leaders, coaches, dog parents, cat parents, we have to we have to be really willing to spend some time with ourselves and you know put that white light smack in our faces and say, "Who are you? What are you doing? What's working? What's not working?" What do you want to change? If you don't know who you are, you can, you know, take all the courses you want. You're not going to get too, too far. Yeah, you know, and that is, uh, wow, uh, there's so much there to, to that, too, because, yes, um, my world, the, the most significant changes in my, in, in my personal life have all, have, not all, the most significant changes have come in the last four years. And I'm 60 years old. Um, there, there's a vulnerable moment. Here's how old I am. I'm 60. <laughs> um, um, but they've come in the last years because I have spent the last four years really trying to figure out who who I am as that person. And so I've done things like I journal now five days a week, every single morning, Monday through Friday. I do gratitudes every morning, Monday through Friday. Me too. I every morning when I wake up. Before I hit the right, listen. Right. When I it used to be when I woke up, I would hit my eyes just pop open and I hit the floor running. My mom would say, "Oh God, the devil just said she's awake. Oh crap!" But I had praying <laughs> myself. She did to my mom. She's gone now, but she loved me. Can't you tell? But the, she knew me very well. But now, and for the last several years, I have made a point. I've had to train myself before I get out of bed. I have to lay in my bed and talk to whoever it is that I'm talking to, myself, God, spirits, whoever it is, the ether. And I'm, cre- I'm talking about what I'm grateful for. If I don't do that, my day is just shot. And by the way, we're, we're still recording. We're not streaming any longer. Can you stay a few minutes more with me? Of course. Because I wanted to yeah, talk I... to you about your therapy dog. I definitely want to hear about that. But yeah, um, gratitude is so critical, and if we don't have it, life is kind of void. It's just there's nothing there. Yeah, no, I I I, I agree. It's every day 
my goal is to begin the day on a positive, a grateful mindset. Um, and while that always, my whole life I would have said, oh, of course, why not? That sounds great. But are you taking the steps to practice to do that? And I never did. I've always been a positive person, but I've very truly been a grateful person in my attitude, in my responses. No, I haven't been. Because you got to practice it. And I practice it now five days a week. I had to learn the same. I mean, I just assumed that, you know, all was good. I was fine. You know, sure, I'm I'm grateful. Turns out I really wasn't. And I have learned <laughs> when you speak something out loud, and it doesn't matter if you're alone. Look, I live alone. I'm very happily living alone for the rest of my life. But I talk to myself a lot. I talk to my pets a lot. I hear what I'm saying, and it sticks with me. And I write what I'm thinking, mm-hmm. and that sticks with me. So, yeah, you, gratitude is meant to be expressed out loud, I think. You know, but you just said something that I am now learned from you I'm going to implement. Instead of just writing it every morning, I'm going to write it and speak it. Say it out morning. loud. Yep. Yeah, I'm yep. going to do that. You're going to find that you're actually, you hear yourself. Listen, and we all have our indoor, you know, conversations, if you will, internal conversations. And most of the time, those are the ones that, honest to God, Bill, if somebody spoke to me the way I speak to myself internally sometimes, I'd bloody their nose in a heartbeat. I know. But we all, so what, to counteract that, I will say, listen, you know, I'll be talking to my cat, the one that wanted me to go play basketball with him. You know, I will constantly talk with them. I'm cooking, I'm doing whatever, and I'm talking out loud, and they're listening. They're looking at me. And I will hear myself say some really silly things that have me laughing, or I will say something that's like, that was brilliant. And I have to run to my office and write it down. You never know what you're going to (laughs) <laughs> yes, yeah, they're going to write it down. So, you know, it's important how you hear yourself, how you communicate with yourself, because if you don't know who you are, you can't really communicate with other people. And that's my firm belief. You know, there's just a quick side note to that. Um, I think her name, I watched a wonderful, and I've watched it probably four times, a wonderful TED Talk on mindfulness and, and communicating with herself. It's done by a woman by the name, I think, Shauna. I'm putting in uh, Shapiro. Mm, I'll go look for it. Yeah, uh, it's the title of the talk. Here it is. The Power of Mindfulness, What You Practice Grows Stronger is the name of her talk. And it was a wonderful talk. And she talks about talking to yourself um, and, and anyway, it was great. It was like a, I'm about due to watch it again. It's been about six months <laughs> uh, to go back and, oh, yeah, I forgot. I need to be doing that. Oh, I'm definitely going so to go watch you, that. You'll appreciate it. Oh, I will. Let's talk about your therapy dog, Aspen. We're both pet parents. I mean, I've got feline office assistants. My, <laughs> I've got a Facebook group, and my one of my cats, he's a twenty pound ginger and he's a hashtag. He, when I say hashtag Hamilton is an ass, his head lifts up. He knows that I'm talking about him. Mm-hmm. And you've got Aspen, so tell me about Aspen. 
Well, she's about three feet from me right now. Um, <laughs> should they, it's funny, we were talking about this morning with a, a friend of mine that I met for coffee. Uh, Aspen is in our lives. We actually had the mother. Um, she's the yellow Labrador, and she had ten puppies. Oh. And we, uh, so our intent, my intent, you know, I just, we have three kids, and I, I, it's, it's pretty magical when your kids can experience puppies. And so I did when I was younger, so I thought I want to see, if, provide my kids that experience. And it was wonderful. Never any intention of keeping one of the puppies because we already had two dogs. And my youngest wrote a three-page paper on why she should be able to keep a puppy. Aww. Well, that's hard, that's, that's hard to say no to, right, when you they go and no. writing a three-page paper, right? So we kept, uh, she, she got to choose. She got the pick of the litter. She chose a female yellow Labrador puppy uh, who has literally changed our lives and the lives of hundreds, if not thousands of people um, through her work. How so? It, it's funny how dogs evolve. Um, my son, at the age of 12 weeks, when this puppy was 12 weeks old, my son called her the puppy from hell. Oh. And said to, said to my daughter, you chose the wrong dog. Um, she didn't want to be touched. She didn't want to be held. She didn't want attention. She didn't give attention. And then all of a sudden, everything started to shift and change. Um, and at when she was two or three, it, it kind of hit me that she's so unique. She's so trainable. She's so calm that I really started investigating how she could become, become a therapy dog. And so we did all the training, my daughter and I did, uh, did all the certifications, and the dog is just brilliant. So we have worked in nursing homes. We have been in uh, pediatric wards of hospitals. We've been geriatric wards of hospitals. We've worked with athletic teams. We've worked with kids in schools. Um, I, I, hundreds of college campuses during finals week or dead week. I mean, you name it, and we've probably been there. Aspen and I have probably been there. And she shows up the same way every single time with nothing but gratitude and love in her heart. <laughs> it's just amazing um, how she can every day love so unconditionally, which most dogs do or creatures do, um, and she gives that love to so many people. So did it again this morning yeah. in the coffee shop. You just inspired me to do something similar with my dog, Abby Rose. She loves everybody, and she's got exquisite manners. Just a, I call her my platinum dog. There's no better dog in the world, except maybe your husband. <laughs> But she she has cats, but she doesn't have another dog, and she loves dogs. And I keep thinking, well, I need to take her to a park. I don't want to take her to a park. I don't like people well enough to talk to them while my dog is playing with their <laughs> dog. So that's a problem. But listening to how you're describing Aspen, Abby Rose would be phenomenal in that role. She's the sweetest dog you've ever met. She really is smart. Oh, my God, she's smart. 
I'm going to tell her, you know, you're putting her to work because of you. She's going to go get a job. Well, and, and you'll and, and here's it's it's the comment we were talking about earlier about the more you give, the more you get. It, it's right. that vicious circle. The more you do it with Eddie Rose, the more you can't stop doing it. When you see the smiles that come on people's faces when you walk into a hospital room, um, you know, it's amazing. You know, when a little kid in school that can't, can barely read in a classroom can sit down with your dog and it's just you and your dog and this little boy, and all of a sudden he can pick up a book and start to read fluently, because your dog has his head in the little boy's lap, I mean, man, that you, you'll never stop doing it. I am absolutely going to look into it. And it never occurred to me. You know, I've, she's here with me 24-7. In fact, my office is actually her bedroom. She has her bed in here. I have a desk, but it's her bedroom. And she's the sweetest dog. She was actually an hour away from being euthanized, an hour and, she, you know, people will look at her and say, oh, you know, is that a, a pit bull? No, she's a Catahoula leopard cart. She's a Louisiana state dog. She's a blue merle. She's beautiful and the sweetest personality you've ever met in your life. I mean, I've never met another dog like her. But I'm, I know she's lonely. She has cats. She has me, but she doesn't have dogs. She needs more people. She needs to be somewhere mm-hmm. where she can be of service. And I can see that in her. I can feel it in her. The holdup has been me. So I am very definitely, thank you for, you know, sharing that with me. But I'm going to look into getting her into a therapy program. I think she would be the absolute best choice. Well, and, and here's what I'll tell you, is that it will create discomfort for you. And at times for your dog, the training to them, you know, <laughs> that's, that's what usually holds a lot of people back. Well, I, you know, she's, look, this is a dog that she can just look at me and know what I want her to do. She is just wicked smart. So I don't know that the training will be a problem. Me being around other people might be, it'll, it'll be uncomfortable for me because I am a highly committed introvert. But I need to get yeah. past some of that anyway. So here we go. Well, I'll it, let you know it, how it, it turns it, out. It, it, yeah, please do. Because if you and your dog touch that many lives in, in, on this journey, you'll be glad that, you know, no, no introvert should become an extrovert. No extrovert should become an introvert. It's just putting ourselves in spots every now and then for the benefit of others, right? Exactly. And, you know, that's what we do with leadership and coaching. Same thing. So whether it's a dog exactly. or whether it's a person, we're, we treat them the same pretty much. Yep, well, listen, yep, yep. It, thank you for spending extra time with me. I really appreciate it. I definitely wanted to hear about Aspen. But it's been wonderful speaking mm-hmm. with you, and I thank you for all of the terrific tips and the advice and basically you helping me get my voice back today. It's going to be a weekend, but, you know, thank you for being patient yeah, with me I'm as sorry. I wander around and look at the weather. <laughs> but so before yeah, we say goodbye, okay. yeah, it's, it is what it is. We, you know, it's not my first hurricane. Where can people find you before I let you go? Uh, 
so a variety of places. First of all, uh, BillExtrum.com is a personal website. Our company's site, as you said, Excel, E-C-S-E-L-L, Institute.com. I am active on LinkedIn. I am active on Twitter. I Did I lose you? Um, oh, I apologize. I'm, are you there? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. Uh, I believe somebody else was trying to call in. Um, I'm not active on Facebook. I'm active on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, uh, BillExtrum.com, and ExcelInstitute.com. And Amazon. Your book is on Amazon. Well, listen, yeah. thank you. It, it, it's a great book. So before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us on iTunes and anywhere else you consume your business podcast. Just look for your partner in Success Radio and take us along on your success journey. Bill, thank you again. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 